0: I want to sit down today. I <laughs> got a little, got a little ankle issue, and getting old was a dumb idea. I don't know. <laughs> Ooh, wow. wow, what's up with that? Uh, hey, thank you so much, Kevin. I appreciate that update. And and like he said, <laughs> and like he said, and one thing I just want to reiterate that we were never here to build our kingdom, right? We're here to to establish, uh, uh, to be a part of God, establishing his kingdom in this world. We're we're here in the service of the king. And so as long as it's provided for, we're going to keep doing it. But we're not building our own kingdom. And if it turns out that that, that begins to change or shift, then we're going to move on to the next thing. We're not worried about that. Like, you know, rent increases or whatever, we're putting that all in the Lord's hands. And he knows he's going to take care of it. But... Uh, uh, it's been it's been an awesome thing to be a part of this community, and one of the things that we do in this community is get into the Word, and that's what we're going to do here this morning. So, um, uh, there's a saying that uh, about about hindsight that hindsight uh, vision is what is 2020. And what we mean by that is it's easy to look back on a situation once it's become a past event and we've got all the all the other information that we didn't have while we were in the middle of something, and it helps us to see and understand what took place a little bit easier. Uh, wouldn't it be cool if we could have that hindsight beforehand, you know, like <laughs> instead of having to wait until something's history today. But in our in our study today, uh Jesus is going to to challenge us to operate with a sort of hindsight from heaven so that our hearts towards our fellow person can be, uh, can be imbued with more grace, with, with, uh, with an enlarged sense of God's love for us. If we know God's character and intent, It can positively impact us on how it is that we interact with one another, how it is that we take care of each other, even down to how it is that we view each other in our lives right here and now. So we're going to continue in our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning. If you've got a way of following along, if you'll head over to Luke chapter 16, please. We're in a section that actually began a chapter ago, began at the beginning of chapter 15, where the religious leaders were criticizing Jesus because he was fellowshipping with, with, and eating with people who were known to be sinners, people who, uh, you know, were not keeping up with God's intents or purposes in their lives, uh, and, and, and they were seen as sinful within the larger community. Jesus was allowing them close to Him. Jesus not only was allowing Him close, He was hanging out with them in, in terms of fellowship, eating with them. So in response to that critique of Jesus, He began with a string of parables and sayings that both explained his behavior, why it was he was doing this, but also was exposing the folly of the religious leaders at that time and some of the patterns and habits that they had fallen into in the way that they were leading the people of Israel. He told several stories of lost things, of Lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son—all of them returned and restored. Kind of cluing them in, cluing us in, and as to God's heart, what this is all about—this ministry of reconciliation. And then Jesus told a story about a shrewd manager who had learned to give God's resources more freely instead of doubling down on more rigid religious bookkeeping, which was addressing them the problem with their religi- with the religious leaders and their response to the people around them the people who were falling short. From there Jesus gave a sequence of sayings that we looked at last week which he used the observable issue of how people handled their material resources as you know observing that as a means of understanding how they were handling the the greater responsibility of spiritual authority in Israel. So he's pointing out that you know they're mishandling money. They're doing things selfishly. And and that reveals that things were selfish on a different level. And now today, Jesus is going to punctuate all of this with a really dynamic parable, which brings it all into focus, kind of like brings an exclamation point to the end of it. We're going to be reading the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I don't know if you're familiar with this story or not, but the fact that I'm describing it as a parable could be controversial to some people, Uh, and we'll kind of get into that, uh, as we, we go along. I'll get into why I believe it's a parable as we're, as we're teaching in this. But if you recall in the last section, Jesus declared that, that what this world honors is detestable to God. And he was addressing the religious leader's desire to look good and be respected by the people around them. And, and here he tells a parable to illustrate that truth, what, what what this world is honoring, God is not. And so let's just jump in. We're going to examine this uh, parable. If you're there in Luke chapter 16, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 19. It says, Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores, as Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. All right, so this is act one of the story. very In a, in a very uh, dramatic way, visceral way, Jesus sets up the scene here. We're introduced to the two characters uh, that we have and their conditions that they experience during life. We've got a, an unnamed rich man, uh, wearing purple, which doesn't mean that like he was a fan of Prince or the Minnesota Vikings, but, but purple in the ancient world was a very rare color, and it was something that was only reserved for people who could afford it. Wealthy people or royalty, things like that. The other man is named, and his name is Lazarus, which means God will help. Now, this is not the same Lazarus as we know from John chapter 11 that Jesus uh, rose back to life. Uh, the fact that he's named is is the reason that some claim that this isn't a parable, uh, because they say Jesus never names characters in his parables, which is true. This is unique. This is the only one instance where a character is named. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be a strong enough argument to me to, to, to say that it's, it's supposed to be taken literally. The name itself is significant. God will help. And right away we see a contrast... Where the tables have been turned. Well, you know, from what we normally would expect, we have a rich man who's unknown, basically saying that he's a nobody, and a poor man who's named, who not only do we know but we'll realize God knows by name. The description of Lazarus' condition is bleak. I mean he's there, he's outside the gate of this rich man, he's unseen, he's unacknowledged, and and he's in need. And he's covered in sores which are being licked by wild dogs, uh, which is a gross picture, but it's also letting us know that he's ceremonially unclean. He couldn't go to the temple like that. He couldn't uh, participate in any of the rituals of Israel at, at that time. So he's an outsider. He's one who's suffering from poverty and one who would probably be seen as cursed by God. We talked about that before, how poverty oftentimes was seen as God's curse. So keep in mind that this story is in response to the Pharisees' critique of Jesus and his, uh, his welcome of these unclean outsiders. He's addressing that issue in this story. So this is the first act, how they live in the present. And then we get to the great reversal as the story goes on, verse 22. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham. And I've got in brackets there at the heavenly banquet because that's an NLT insertion. We're using the New Living Translation here, which I really, really like, except for moments like this where they inserted something there that's not in the original text. It's the dynamic equivalence translation, which means they're trying to give us a sense of what's being said there, so they'll take liberties with it. This is a liberty I believe they should not have taken. So try to pretend that you didn't read at the heavenly banquet, because it kind of changes the tenor of this. Anyway, the rich man also died and was buried, verse 23, and he went to the place of the dead, literally in the Greek, that's Hades, there in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. So again, we've got this scenario here where death is the great equalizer. And here we see that their post-mortem conditions have been reversed. Lazarus is lifted up by the angels to sit next to Abraham, the father of the chosen people. The rich man gets buried. And from there, he finds himself in the gloomy netherworld of Greek mythology, Hades. Hades where he experiences something new to him, suffering. And in this story, the rich man is able to see Abraham and and Lazarus off in the distance, and and we'll see as the story goes on, he's even able to communicate with them. He, He didn't care to see Lazarus in life, but here in his suffering, he now sees him, and he can't help but realize that their fortunes have been reversed. Here's the thing. This is a common theme. In many ancient fables that we we are aware of from history, the Egyptian story of setme and Osiris from the first century B.C. has a similar story where a rich person and a poor person die at the same time, and they find that their fortunes are reversed in the in the afterlife. We know that there were several Jewish versions of this actual story, one in the Palestinian Talmud, which details almost identically with this story, except that. It was a rich tax collector and a poor Torah scholar whose conditions were reversed in death. And in the Jewish story, the the dead poor man is able to return to warn uh, wealthy people in their dreams that they need to change their ways. I'm persuaded to believe that Jesus has taken a well-known folktale of his time and is now reworking it for his purposes to address this issue of why he's eating with people considered sinners, which brings us then to Act 3, the rich man's plea, verse 24. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip his, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, uh, Son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. The rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send them to my father's home. For I have five brothers and I want them to warn them so they won't end up in this place of torment. As I said, in the Talmudic version of this story, the poor man is allowed to return in the dreams of the rich to warn them of their ways. But here's where Jesus puts his own twist on this story. We keep reading verse 29. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they'll repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And there we need a boom, like the crash of drums and stuff, because this is the punctuation. Again, as with all the parables, there's no ending. Uh, you know, what happens with the five brothers? Well, that's up to us to decide. Because as we read the story, we are the five brothers who've been privy to this little thing. And, and, and what will we do with what this story reveals? And, and what does it reveal, Rob? What, what, what's, what's, what, yeah, that's, so let's think about that. What is this story about? What do we want to focus on here? As I said, many read this literally. Some will say that this is the most vivid picture of the afterlife that the Bible affords us. The argument that, that says that it's not a parable is that it doesn't begin with the usual introduction that says then Jesus told them a parable, which the Bible does do that a lot in the New Testament, but not always. I mean, that's actually not a, a uh, you know, there's, uh, uh, that preamble is not mandatory uh, back in Luke chapter 14. Uh, Jesus began a parable without announcing it as one just said there was a certain whatever. The The parable of the prodigal son starts out with, well, with, with there was a man with two sons. In fact, the parable from two weeks ago starts with just Jesus said. Now, the NLT words it differently, but in the original Greek, it's Jesus said. There, that preamble was not mandatory. I have issues with the idea that this is supposed to be taken literally. I got real issues with this because if it's literal... Does this mean that the afterlife for God's people means to snuggle up to Abraham for all of eternity? I'm sure that Abraham's a cool dude. But I'm not sure. That sounds like paradise to me. Not only that, we're going to get there really late. Like, there's a lot of people in front of us. So, like, I get up there. Hey, I'm here to sit with Abraham. Oh, he's way over there. Come on in. Sit with me. Okay. <laughs> all eternity. So... Uh, <laughs> If it's literal, it means that those who are saved and those who are damned can't get to each other, but they can see each other and they can talk. And that's disconcerting to me. Because I would think that given the description of this, there would be a lot of screaming and stuff. And so you're trying to have a conversation with the person you're sitting next to who's you know several million out from Abraham, and you can't really because there's so much screaming uh, going on. It's all kind of sounded not too great to me. Um, also, this this story introduces ideas and places that are completely foreign to the rest of the Bible. Ideas like Hades, which comes directly directly from Greek mythology as the place of the dead. Now, granted, Hades is the Greek word that was used to translate the Hebrew word Sheol when they made the Greek translation of the Old Testament Bible. Sheol means grave. But in the Hebrew Bible, there was never a conscious place. There was never anybody observing anything or any sort of communication going on like we have in this story. Worst of all, if this is literal, then the basis for the rich man's condition in his afterlife really comes down to works or or what he failed to do in assisting Lazarus because... That's the only thing mentioned here. And really, you could even say, what even works? It was just that he was rich. (laughs) Because he was rich, he's going to hell. Uh, That's a weird kind of thing to to draw from this. And we could say, oh, but there's all these other nuances. But not really. Not if we're going to take this literally. Well, it's not literal, it's imagery. Well, we can't have it both ways. It's either literal or it's imagery. And if it's imagery, then what is it imaging for us here? That's what we have to think about. So for me, I see it as a parable, I see it as imagery, and it makes total sense given where it's placed in this, in this account, at the end of a string of parables and sayings that Jesus gave in addressing why it is he's eating with people who are considered sinful. And if it's a parable, then it's not a complete systematic theology, uh, parables aren't meant to address the ultimate questions of life, like explaining the afterlife to us. They're meant to give us a clue, oftentimes just this surprising glimpse into the nature of the kingdom of God. So really, this is a word picture that's meant to explain to us something going on in Jesus's work, in what it was that Jesus was doing. I don't believe this was meant to be taken as instruction about afterlife. I believe it's about this life. Parables are never about what they show on the surface. We've learned that over and over again. And I believe this was meant to instruct us on how to live right here, right now, today, and then tomorrow if we have that. This is on the heels of Jesus saying what the world honors is detestable to God. And and this story of reversal on the other side of this life illustrates that whole the last will be first and the first will be last type of theme that Jesus was was emphasizing in his ministry. And so first and foremost, what do we take from this parable? First and foremost, I believe that we learn that God's evaluation of us is the only one that matters. Everything the rich man had indicated that he was blessed by God. And we talked about the fallacy of assuming that God's blessing were always in material form, you know, material nature last week, that riches and material wealth were somehow an indicator of God's, uh, God's blessing. This guy had the clothes, he had the house, he had the good stuff to eat. He had it made from all outward appearances. Oh, he's so blessed. And yet the reality was, it was Lazarus, even in his poverty, who was truly blessed by God, truly in that position of knowing God's favor, which gets revealed when the curtain gets pulled back. In fact, the interaction between Abraham and this rich man is almost close to satire here because the rich man calls out to father Abraham for pity. Abraham responds to him by calling him son, but he also reinforces the idea that there's this huge irreconcilable gap between them. Which brings us back to that idea that not everyone who calls themselves a child of Abraham truly is. Not everyone who goes by the title of Abraham's child is really that. Not all who may look like they have it together and are respected celebrities of religion are truly representative of God's activity in this world. The rich man still saw himself, even in his postmortem condition, still saw himself as superior to Lazarus because he's asking him to be ordered around like a servant. Tell Lazarus to fetch some water for me, please. Uh, Jesus is clearly making his case against this elevated sense that the Pharisees had over other people in this. They looked good, they said the right things, they condemned the right people, and it worked together to help them feel superior to others. But in God's evaluation, they were weighed in the balances and they were found wanting. So being respectable or affirmed by people here in this life is not our highest good. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. It's knowing we're loved by God and then building our identity around that reality so that God's values and God's priorities become our own. Because we want to be like the one who loves us. That's why we, like Jesus, we don't worry about sharing God's love indiscriminately and lavishly with anyone because looking respectable is not on heaven's to-do list. It just isn't. Another thing the parable is revealing is is seen in Abraham's refusal to allow Lazarus to go warn the rich man's five brothers. Abraham says if they're not going to listen to Moses and to the prophets, they're not going to listen even if someone rises from the dead. And so for us, as people who are looking back at this, we can get that 2020 hindsight of history of what's being said here, because Jesus is on the scene. He's bringing the fulfillment of what Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament had predicted. He came to fulfill the promises of restoration that God had made to Israel, but they didn't believe it. They wouldn't believe it. They refused to accept anything except their own interpretations and expectations of what it was God was going to be doing. And, and, and their interpretation of scripture superseded everything else so that when jesus did rise from the dead they refused to believe it and so it's a poignant message and it reminds us that we have to be humble and flexible in our evaluations of god's activity and god's word the pharisees and the religious leaders of jesus's day seem to feel like they had everything figured out They knew who Messiah was going to be like. They knew what Messiah would be doing. And Jesus didn't look like that at all. They had this whole thing. They had the scriptures wired. They had them wired tight so tightly that they missed the Messiah when he actually did show up. And look, this is not trying to diss the Jewish religious leaders. They're like any religious leaders. They're like any system of religion, including our own. It's something that we're prone to do. And it's very easy to do as Especially as people who are committed to being loyal to god 's word, we get so enamored with our own interpretations of scriptures we we anchor our whole sense of value on our own grasp of truth, we get so sure that God sees us as right and everybody else is wrong, or at least catching up with us uh, along the way. What God wants, what we see over and over, especially played out in the characters that are that are are there in scripture is to be people who hold the truth in humility, who are willing to be taught, who are always exploring and learning and seeing from fresh angles, who are slow to speak but quick to hear. To make up our mind about God's Word and never revisit it or review it or at least view it from a different perspective is almost as bad as not listening to His Word at all. That's what Abraham is saying to the rich man, because he's talking to people who knew the word, but they only knew what they had interpreted. It's a living word that we have, what we've been given in this Bible. And it's bringing new mercies every morning to us. I've said before, I used to look at God's word like it was uh, a set of doctrines that had been figured out a long time ago, and my role as pastor is to defend that set of doctrines, like it's a castle on a hill somewhere. And my role is that I'm going to march around and guard that those walls and take shots at anybody that looks like they're threatening this this structure. But as I've matured, and I use that term very loosely when applied to me, <laughs> I realize this word is not a static thing to be defended. This word is an invitation to an adventure. This is a territory to be explored. Sometimes coming across old trails from long ago, sometimes finding something relatively new cut through, but all of it there unfolding daily as I venture into it. Always leading me to be on the lookout for fresh ways in which God's Spirit can guide me through an ever-changing world. Now, I realize someone could say, Rob, are you saying that there's no absolute truths? Uh, no, I'm not saying that. I, I believe there are absolute truths which I do not have an absolute grasp on. So it's up to me to remain faithful to what I believe, but humble enough to learn. Finally, <laughs> thank you. Finally, what's the big picture application of this story? What's Jesus wanting us to walk away with and, and think about? What's the overall lesson to be learned? Some say it's a warning about avoiding hell. Some, actually, I would say most commentators will talk about helping the poor as the takeaway lesson. And that's a good lesson. I mean, the, the, it's something the Bible definitely has a lot to say about. There's a lot. Uh, uh, in Scripture, about making sure that we care for the poor. So certainly, let's be kind and compassionate towards those who are suffering lack or in need. But let's also remember that parables are never about what they're showing us on the surface. Something else is being communicated in this story. So think about what started it all. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. What started it all? Anybody Remember? Jesus is eating with sinners and being criticized for that. He's welcoming those deemed as unclean. This story is part of Jesus' response to that critique. I believe it's revealing that Jesus is doing in the present age something that everyone was expecting to happen in the age to come. His welcome of the outcast was how it is he was practicing on earth as it is in heaven. In contrast, the Pharisees were behaving towards the people that Jesus was welcoming like the rich man was behaving towards Lazarus. And to me, the idea that emerges from this, that we take away, that can change our lives, is that we're called to treat each other in light of heaven's restorative grace. Because that's what Jesus was doing with the people he welcomed in. This is how we follow his example, living on earth as it is in heaven. We can live with one another right now as though the world were already a better place. A lot of times, you know, when I'm dealing with a difficult situation or a difficult person, I'll ask myself, what would future Rob wish you would do in this situation, Rob? And what I mean by that is, how is this going to affect things? And, and how will I think about this later on in my life? It's a good question to pose. You know, my mom and I uh, really struggled in our relationship in the later years of it because I had l- left the crazy church and she had not. And, and so uh, there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of criticism and, and just meanness at times. And I wanted to respond to her in anger and frustration over those things a lot of times. But I always would ask myself, what would future Rob want me to do here? Because I knew my mom wouldn't always be with me. She was older. She wasn't in great health. And, and I kept thinking about how I'd feel after she was gone when I was future Rob. So it, it would temper how I would respond to her. And I determined to show love when she would criticize me or my choices. And as the, the now fully fledged future Rob after she's gone, I can tell you that I truly appreciate past Rob for leaving me with fewer regrets along those lines. So let's broaden this out with this parable in mind. When I'm interacting with someone, someone that I'm struggling with, maybe maybe it's their moral choices, whatever it may be that I have, my reasons for, I need to ask myself, how would heavenly Rob respond to this? The Rob who sees things then from the perspective of heaven and not just earth. Well, I guess heavenly Rob would know that there's a lot of things going on with any given person and it's way more than he has the earthly insight to to know how to deal with. Oh, that's good. Well, what else? Well, Heavenly Rob would know that grace is huge and powerful and covers so much more than I ever could have imagined on earth. Ah, that's good. Anything else? I think Heavenly Rob would know that he has no right or qualification to judge someone in this broken world. And that's it. I need to learn to see people through the eyes of heaven, to view people like heavenly Rob would, or heavenly Najla would, or heavenly Shirley would, or, you know, any every... <laughs> no, those are the only two going to heaven. <laughs> Take that away with you. This is what Jesus was doing. That's how we live on earth as it is in heaven. To view one another in light of heaven's restorative love. Viewing each other through the eyes of heaven's grace. I believe that's what it's trying to teach us, this parable. That's the reason Jesus was welcoming sinners in. And it's a challenge to all of us. So let's take this parable to heart. Let's... Let's allow its truth to shape how we live right here and now. Let's not just flatten it out to, to some, uh, some shallow warning about flames somewhere. Let's take the teeth of this and let that begin to work on our hearts to affect us in ways that can affect this world in beautiful ways. Let's determine to love on earth like we are loved in heaven. Right on? right on? All right, very cool. Why don't you stand up and I'll sit here. <laughs> Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these parables that Jesus gave us, that challenges us, that, that awaken things in us, that broaden our hearts and our understanding. Help us, Lord, each one of us that are here today. Help us to to gain heaven's insight, to look past what we see on the surface, especially as we interact with our fellow human being, especially as we interact with one another here. Father, reinforce in our own hearts and lives that you see us as valuable and that you love us. And from that place, Lord, we can take the risk of loving anyone else, knowing that we are loved we can love. So help us be like Jesus. Help us to welcome everyone in. Help us, Father, to advance your kingdom by eating with sinners just like Jesus did. Deliver us, Lord God, from what has been the stumbling block for your people throughout our entire existence. Deliver us from a shallow application of religion. Lead us, Father, into a deep, resonant life of your grace. I pray this for us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's speak this blessing. I'm not going back up there. <laughs> oh, let's pray this prayer together. There's a perfect way to end this uh, today. Uh, let's pray this and let's live this out in reality. Uh after the service, if you'd like prayer for uh anything, if you have prayer uh, need for prayer for healing, there'll be people up here to pray with you, anoint you with oil if you'd like. Uh but uh other than that, let's let's pray this. Father in heaven, reveal who you are, set the world right. Do your will here like it's done in heaven, provide for our daily needs. Whoops, keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others, keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. We confess you're in charge. You're our provider. Our lives are in your hands. Yes and amen. Go in peace, you children of God.